Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies and New Books Food, today with our guest, Allison Smith, and she's the author of Cabbage and Caviar, A History of Food in Russia, just published by University of Chicago Press and Reaction Books 2021. Thank you, Alison, so much for, for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. It's really fun to talk about this project. So I, I read this book and I got really hungry. <laughs> um, I, I want to start with that principle. A little bit about Alison. I've, I've been a fan of her work for years um, on the Russia History blog, and, and I wanted to mention uh, what she is and, and what she does. And so she, uh, Alison Smith is professor and chair of history at the University of Toronto. She's published widely on the history of social estates in Tsarist Russia and on the history of food in Russia, cul- culminating in this book, Cabbage and Cuisine. I'll mention a few of her works. In 2014, she published For the Common Good and Their Own Well-Being, Social Estates in Imperial Russia, Oxford University Press 2014, out in paperback 2018. Recipes for Russia, 2008, Food and Nationhood Under the Czars, published by Northern University Press, 2008, out in paperback as well, 2011. Uh, and a new book edited together with Matt Romaniello and Tricia Starks with Bloomsbury 2021. This book, I can't wait to read. It's called The Life Cycle of Russian Things from Fish Guts to Faberge mm-hmm. uh, out, out this year as well. So I, I, I want to talk talk to you, um, Allison, about this because you've been a food historian and a social historian of Imperial Russia for, for so many years now. What motivated you to write this book? Well, this is something that actually came to me in some ways. Uh, I had, you know, my first book, my dissertation project and first book were on food um, in a relatively narrow time period, sort of the about the 1760s or 70s um, through through emancipation um, in 1861. Um, and I sort of came across, you know, that was something that I came to um, actually, in part due to somebody who you have recently interviewed, Steve Bittner, um, who I was mm-hmm. in graduate school with, who mentioned that food was a hot topic. And I thought, well, that would be sort of fun. Uh, and I went to my advisor, Richard Helley, and said, I was thinking of maybe doing something about Russian food. And he said, I've always wanted to know what the Russian peasant ate and let me go do whatever I wanted to do when it came to the history of food. Um, 
And I really, I did enjoy working on that project, but I had the same thing that I think many people do when they finish off a first sort of dissertation book, which is of never wanting to go back to that topic again. I'm feeling completely mm, yeah, like burnt exactly. out on it. You know, it's such a long process. Um, you know, I had my PhD was 2000. The first book came out in 2008. So it was, a, it was a slow process to get, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a needed process, but at the time it felt like a very slow kind of unending process to get that to come out. So if I had this moment right after that where I thought, I will never write anything about food again. I am done with this. Um, <laughs> and then of course that ends up not happening. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I have a, a chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Food History on national cuisines that I was sort of asked to, to contribute out of that, which was sort of one thing of saying like, well, maybe I will still write some things about that. Um, and then I have a, a chapter in an earlier book that uh, Trish Starks and Matt Romaniello edited um, on the senses in Russian history about taste. That was really mm -hmm. the first sort of pulling me back into thinking about food history. So I, I, I had sort of made peace with the idea that I might continue to write things about food. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I did this whole second project on Soslovia um, and have been mm -hmm. moving into a third project that maybe we can talk about later. Sure. Um, and then actually, I was contacted by Reaction Books to maybe contribute the book on food to their series of histories of national cuisines. Yeah. Um, so they have a whole series, you know, there's a history of food in Germany, which is, I believe, called Beyond Bratwurst, um, you know, history of food great in a whole title. bunch of places. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. And so they, you know, I was sort of approached to do this. And I have to admit that I very much kind of hemmed and hawed a bit about whether it was something I wanted to take on. In part because, you know, I, I do have another project that I'm interested in working on. And in part because it was a very different sort of writing challenge to the sorts of, you know, the monograph, the academic monographs that I had written before. Um, I was approached to do this with the concept that this would be a general history of food in Russia and something that's aimed at, um, an, at a general audience. And, you know, I, I think it was mm. sort of an educated general audience or something like that. Right. So that struck me as a really interesting set of challenges. One was moving out of my comfort zone of Tsarist Russia or Imperial Russia and needing to actually write about the Soviet era, which I'd never really done before, needing to write about um, earlier periods, which I'd, I'd taught all of these things but never written about them. And then also mm -hmm. the challenge of thinking about how to write something that isn't that's less focused on argument the way that, you know, sort of academic articles and monographs tend to be and more focused on narrative. Um, mm -hmm. And I ended up deciding, I, I sort of was approached about doing this right at the time when I was actually contributing pretty regularly to the Russian history blog, which was in a lot of ways, a short form version of that kind of writing, trying to present historical material in a different voice to the one that I normally wrote in. And so I ended up deciding that it was an interesting challenge to take on. Um, and then of course it took, uh, I, it, anyway, it took some time. It was a bigger challenge in some ways than I expected, but also I think a really rewarding one in the end. So I'm glad, very much glad in the end that I, that I agreed to do it. Um, and then sort of had the, had the space to, to take it on and put some time into it. Yeah, I, I I have a lot of questions starting from that, and and w one of the biggest questions that I have for you, and I think our listeners um, will will be intrigued by this, is all I mean all of the sources that you have managed to gather to give 
in this book that multi-sensory feel it it as i read it 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 was an experience it, it was almost like a dining experience and so one of the first questions that i, I had was um how do you convey that sense of sitting at a Russian table, being part of the the table, whatever it is, however defined nationally, traditionally, transnationally, did did you think about that when you were developing the, the chapters and the draft for the book? I did. Um, you know, when I wrote my sort of dissertation and first book, I, I I wouldn't say I fell into, but I in retrospect I suffered a bit from one of the challenges that I think academic food history can have, which is that sometimes the food itself um, isn't that present. You know, you don't get a sense of the fact that something would be really delicious or that it would, you know, sort of the whole sensory world of it. And that's in some ways why I was really grateful to be pushed into thinking about taste for um, the edited volume on the senses in Russian history. So thinking that was a very narrow vision of taste, but still it was a sort of helpful moment in thinking about other ways of talking about the subject. So when I sat down to think about how to put this all together, there are some ways in which my sort of other side as a sort of social historian is very much there. You know, and one of the things that I think has been true for me throughout, um, even in that earlier project, is really thinking about food as something that's not just on the table, but something that is produced by people, you know, that is mm-hmm, that is harvested, mm-hmm. that is hunted, that is gathered. Um, and I, in some ways, I think this has a lot to do with some of my childhood reading. I loved the Little House on the Prairie books as a kid. Is that um, right? <laughs> which now, in like in retrospect, there are some things that are challenging about those books that... Sure. I, anyway, I look back on it and I think like, hmm. But the thing that always got me about them was the process. So like these rich Mm. descriptions of storing food for the winter and like what a larder looked like. And the, I mean, the process, like I have vivid memories of the sort of bits about slaughtering a pig. It's not not a Mm. bloody thing, but what you do with all the parts. And so I think I've always had this interest in um, that side of the history of food. And so this was really a chance to get to sort of lean into that a bit more than I had in some of the earlier things that I wrote. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, I tried to, I, you know, I came up with, you know, for all that they approached me about this, I still had to come up with a proposal and think about how it was that I was going to approach it. I think I initially suggested something with like four or five sort of thematic chapters and then a history. And in the end, it's ended up with sort of two general chapters at the beginning and then just the history you know the rest are all just sort of move move us through history um and part of the reason for that was i realized that especially if this is for just non-russianist audiences i needed to say like say what is a pirog what is she what is borscht Mm -hmm. you know what is what are pemeni so the first chapter tries to introduce food and i think my favorite part of the book is actually the introduction to that chapter because it is a celebration of the Stolovaya at the Leninka, the, um, the library, the main library in Moscow that I think many listeners may have spent a lot of time at discussing. Gen- Genius soup is what you, is how you describe it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are, they do have people who are genius soup makers there. Yeah, I swear. It's, I mean, you know, these are, these are wonderful institutions now. And so just sort of thinking through this as a way to introduce the different ways of, you know, the various different elements, thinking through the experience of eating in a stolovaya, which I think some people might think like, oh, why would you do that? But I actually really love the stolovaya. So for me, it is part of a, 
a sort mm-hmm. of a really um, a positive feeling about you know my my own experiences in Russia um, and about Russian food and eating in Russia. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I'm, those were some of the things that led me in that direction. I, I'm 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 curious, Allison. You know, since since we're talking about soup and and how you begin with soup in your introduction, how how you deal with some of the stereotypes, perhaps, or or at least kind of common impressions that people might have about Russian food. They they mm-hmm. think Russians are are equals vodka, or they're always eating borscht. Um, you historicize the potato and you do a number of really interesting things in, in the book to show how nutrition and taste um, change over time. So perhaps could you introduce um, to those who haven't read your book yet, content wise, what, what's in the chapters and how, how you're dealing with some of the sort of staples, shitakasha, pishanasha, that, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, and, and maybe with that, the, this, again, like stereotypes, what, what people think of when they think about Russian national dishes. Absolutely. I, one, of the, um, one, I, one of my joking versions of the title was fewer potatoes than you might expect, uh, because I know that potatoes are you know, the thing that everybody thinks about when they think of Russian food. And of course, it's such a relatively recent part of Russian eating. Um, so I open with two chapters that just try to give a lot of background to the things that sort of lay behind the, the history of food in Russia. Um, so the chapter one looks at sort of Russian dishes, the things that appear on a Russian table, um, which I organize by sort of different parts of the meal. And I think, again, anybody who's ever gone to the Stolovia or canteen or cafeteria for anybody who is not a Russianist um, or a Russian speaker, uh, sort of, they they are always organized sort of the same, where you have a salad um, to begin, you have a a first dish which is a soup, and a second dish which is some sort of a a meat dish generally, or maybe a maybe a, a vegetarian dish or something like that, and then some sweets perhaps, um, a baked good, um, and certain drinks. So I thought that that was a way of introducing the broad array of the foods that would sort of appear and reappear throughout the rest of the book, and then in chapter two. Um, I also think it's really important to think about sort of why those foods and why various, uh, you know, why those foods both as things that are prepared and and based on ingredients. And so it looks a bit at the history of agriculture, the effect of environment on Russian foodways, what the expansion out of the sort of old heartland of Rus, which is very northern and very forested into the um, southern steppe region, and then certainly its expansion um, into what are now a whole series of separate countries, um, what that did in, uh, in terms of affecting Russian foodways, thinking through some technologies of preservation, just sort of trying to give a sense of the sort of work that went into preparing foods. Um, and I think, again, that's partially because of right. my love of things like, you know, this sort of process literature in some ways. Uh, but I also yeah. think it's really important to know sort of what was going on behind the scenes in a lot of ways. Um, and then the rest of the book just sort of moves chronologically from, you know, sort of beginning with archaeological digs around Novgorod um, and uh, or, you know, sort of elsewhere to think, you know, to try to think about what we know about Russian eating in the mm-hmm. earliest days of Kievan Rus or of sort of Russian settlement around Novgorod and further north, which is, in, you know, there's really fascinating things that you can find out about this, but it's all... Um, 
it's very, it, it does feel like sort of being a, a, a historical detective and picking a couple of little clues and trying to build a larger narrative or a larger vision of what was going on from that time. Mm. But, but that said, you know, it did make me think like, oh gosh, I wish I had become an archaeologist and was working on these <laughs> kinds of materials that people have found. It's truly That's amazing. Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I thought. I mean, I really thought of you in many ways as, as, as sort of like in the spirit of Carlo Ginzburg and <laughs> and and Natalie Zimon Davis. You're hunting for clues. And, and in many ways, though, you know, if I may say so, though, this is a book that's covering thousands of years from Rus and the, the pre-Petrine period all the way up to, you know, the post-Soviet espresso drinkers and, and McDonald's, which we can talk about, too. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I love the fact that you're actually still dealing with sources from the inside and many of these are, are sort of like cookbook writers, that mm-hmm. people who wrote those and became, you know, those books that became bestsellers, as well as that external travel literature and, and ethnographic um, sort of observation. And, and that's, that's what I wanted to ask you next. So I, I wanted to ask you a question about your sources. I know that you, you I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody has read more than you in the history of cookbooks in the 18th and 19th century for, for Russia. Could you tell us about some of those writers and, and you know, who was their audience and how, like sort of how you found some of their works? Sure. So this was um, the 18th and 19th, early 19th century sections are the things that I wrote about a lot in my first book. So that was the thing that I knew best. And it was interesting that that chapter, maybe it actually ends up being two chapters because it's what I knew the best, were the things that I had tons of notes on. You know, I, I was able to pull out various things that I'd taken notes of, you know, t- almost 25 years ago at this point. Oh my gosh, certainly more than 20 years ago, and that had never made its way into a piece of writing. Um, like somewhere in there, there's a list of, uh, there's a few lists that I found, and I, I like copying out lists, and, you know, but the, the, it's hard to fit a list into something that is making an argument. Mm-hmm. But I was like, this is where I can sure. put my Re- list. Re- recipes <laughs> are not arguments. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or like lists of seeds or things like that. But it's, you know, it, so I was able to use a lot of material there. I think that there are, um, I think my favorite cookbook author who I came across from that first project who appears a fair bit in this, it was Katerina Abdieva, um, who's a really interesting figure. She um, became, I think, the first sort of really kind of blockbuster um, cookbook author in Russia uh, with her cookbook, The Handbook of the um, Experienced Russian Housewife. Um, And it is you know, she squarely aims it at, you know, what she describes as like the middling status, the middle, mm-hmm. the middling, the middle parts of Russian society, not the wealthiest people, obviously not the poorest people, um, but sort of people who are trying to create a comfortable home um, in mm-hmm. sort of 1840s, 1850s. Um, they, her, her, her first cookbook was printed and reprinted and expanded um, in many editions over a couple of decades. Um, so she sort of predated um, Elena Malachovyets, who's of course the more famous right. person. Right, young part- housewives, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so Avdeyeva predated her by about a decade and a half, something like, maybe it's even two decades, I've, about two decades. Um, and, you know, I, I think that she was the first cookbook author who I started reading things and just like sort of getting her, like she really, differentiated between foods that were Russian foods and foods that were like part of the Russian table. 
um, which I found like they're so her her works are really interesting. They've got introductions. They're she's quite a fascinating figure. Um, her brothers uh, were the uh, Polavoy brothers, um, who were sort of you kind of maybe medium level literary figures, um, also mm-hmm. in that early nineteenth century world. And so she was sort of hooked into some of these areas, but has a very distinct presence in a lot of ways. So she's she's a, she's um. Mm-hmm. I, 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 she's a fascinating figure and I have at various points thought like, Oh, maybe it would be good to go back and just do a deep dive into her, but we'll see at some point I may find mm. uh, time to go back to her. Uh, so those, yep. you know, I did at one point think that I had pretty successfully read the vast majority of cookbooks. I mean, not literally from cover to cover, but looked at at least the vast majority of cookbooks that were published between the 1760s and the very early 1860s in Russia. Um, I'm sure I missed a few, but I definitely looked at an awful lot of them. Um, For this book, when I had to expand the chronological view, I didn't aim for that same kind of um, comprehensiveness, I have to admit. So it was, you know, sort of doing work, taking advantage of um, a couple of, you know, being in uh, Moscow or St. Petersburg, also taking advantage of the fact that both the um, Leninka and the Fublichka, which are the big libraries in Moscow and St. Petersburg, have digitized pretty amazing numbers of of books um, that are mm-hmm. now available through their library catalogs. Uh, so I was able to pull up yet more things when I was working here in Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. So really trying to, you know, not trying to be comprehensive, but at least trying to get a sense of how things have developed. You know, of course, the big famous Soviet cookbook is the book of tasty and healthy food. Or it might be mm-hmm. healthy and tasty. I always forget which comes first. Um, and so I looked at various, um, you know, several different um, editions of that cookbook. Um, also a few other Soviet cookbooks that I sort of came across that seemed uh, interesting in various ways. Um, and just tried to use those in a whole bunch of ways to just to add add texture, I think, to the actual descriptions of food. Um, right, right, right. Um, well, could you introduce some of the foods? Uh, that that's that's my <laughs> my next question. So we, we've been we've been talking in an academic way around this, and 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 I think really you know back to the pre Petrine period and and some of the sources from the early Slavic world. What, what are what are some of the foods that you find as as staples well of course, i mean of course there's bread you know bread is 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 sort of at the base of everything and of course the russian bread is famously a sour bread um generally a, a, a rye bread that is uh was sort of baked at times in really huge loaves uh, although not always in really huge loaves but in you know pretty significant quantities um and that is really such a basic part of um, Russian cuisine that is it's still a part of it even if the sort of sour rye bread is sometimes not as popular I think in the current day as some others but it is I think really an essential part it's you know you see that in mm-hmm. you know in in very early records you get hints at it it sort of shows up all throughout there's always concern over baking bread and the quality of bread and the amount of bread and the size of loaves and all sorts of things so that is really a, a, one of the essential things um, I think the other thing that, you know, I would like everybody always thinks of borscht as this really Russian thing, yeah. but that is, or of course, Ukrainian. you know, quite, yeah, I mean, that's actually <laughs> really, really kind of a fighting statement in some ways. 
um, but because it is, it's not, you know, it, it, it more came from Ukraine. I mean, it becomes very common in Russia, obviously. I, I may have eaten a lot of borscht in Russia. I've got, um, but it's, you know, certainly it's a, it's a sort of later sort of 19th and 20th century uh, sort of major part of like what you would consider sort of Russian food. And it's chi um, or cabbage soup, which is the one that's the true, like the, the sort of the longer yeah. lasting um, Russian soup. I remember when I was indexing uh, my first book, I had this huge problem of how to subdivide the entry for she because I mentioned she so oh many my goodness. times. Yeah, yeah. And you, you, and you have the recipes for it in the back. I should mention to our <laughs> listeners that your recipes are fabulous at the end. I think you have five different categories for she, right? Well, it's, you know, it is one of the things that sh shows up in a whole bunch of different ways. And I'll note that they're all historic recipes that I have literally just translated. So I'm not sure how actually cookable they are, but, <laughs> you know, at least they're there. We, we won't worry about that. <laughs> um, yeah. So I say a word about dumplings, too, if you could. So I, sure. I know that Abdeva, someone you mentioned, and, and she's Siberian, right, or a native of Siberia. So we're talking about pelmeni, but mm -hmm. other different kinds of dumplings. Give, give us an overview if you can. Oh, gosh. Um, so there, I mean, the famous ones are probably Tomieni and Varieniki, although Varieniki are, again, more associated with Ukraine and having sort of come in. Um, in some ways, I think that the dough wrapped around a filling in various ways is very common. So whether it's the sort of boiled or pan fried or there's a version that's sort of pan fried and steamed. Uh, Pomieni are the small meat-filled ones that are associated with Siberia and often with being frozen. There's a lot of debate over the etymology over of, of the word Pomieni, but it might have something to do with a word for ear because they're sort of twisted up like a tortellini is the thing that people who aren't familiar mm. with them might be more familiar with. Varieniki are bigger and they can be filled with all sorts of different things. Um, potatoes, now, cabbage, uh, cheese, meat, fruit, uh, many different things. Um, mm -hmm. There's also the pirog, which isn't the dumpling because it's generally a right. baked thing. But that is, I think, as I think it's grouped in my mind, it's mentally grouped in with these. Um, again, it's a dough encasing something uh, that can be, again, you know, cabbage. It can be fish. It can be meat. They can be large. They can be pirogki, which are smaller. Um, there is the kulabiaka, um, which is sort of the most grand that's filled with like a, a large piece of fish and various other fillings. Um, but those sorts of filled pies um, are, and it's sort of pie and more of a, of a, of a not, not of a sweet pie, but of a, a savory uh, pie is probably even, even of older um, existence uh with it. like so those are again things that you see references to in very early sources uh because they were such a common thing and again mm -hmm. these are all sort of really smart foods you know because they both sort of take yeah, a small amount a of say, protein and expand it into a full meal by adding maybe some other filling adding some bread with it something like that so they can be very sort of basic comforting foods that are really, you know, sort of extending limited supplies of certain things. And then of course they can also be very fan, they can be elaborately decorated. You can, you know, make add all sorts of ingredients to the insides of them. You know, this mm -hmm. book that um, this edited volume that we've got coming out, the fish guts part actually refers to mostly to Isinglass. Um, but there was another uh, good called uh, Viziga, um, 
which is the dried spinal cord of fish like sturgeon, of cartilaginous fish, which was used as a filling in uh, pierogi and things like that. So there's mm-hmm. all sorts of sort of unusual variants on these um, that maybe not unusual, but like lots of different variants on these. Oh my gosh, and I forgot mushrooms. Mushrooms are of course the classic <laughs> filling for all of these things. Mushrooms. Right. Oh. What would Russia be without mushrooms? <laughs> or, or, and and here here's where I want to go with you, or or to ask about class. Mm. Um, so you know, you you have so many interesting sections. I think, and in, in, in your book is layered and textured around this question of of, of nationalism as well as regionalism and, and tradition. And, and I guess you know people would be surprised in many ways to read. The history of kvass and and to think of kvass as as perhaps even more common than vodka, I mean how how did you how did you get at that that other issue? I mean this seems like a big issue for for production and and for consumption of of, of beverages. Um, what what's what's the history of kvass and then sort of the larger kind of more intellectual question? How how do you begin to um, investigate that as a historian? So kvass is um, a very lightly fermented beverage um, that is uh, brewed often out of sort of stale or leftover bread. Um, so it's got a um, sometimes a slightly sweet flavor to it. It's definitely, it, it is something that many people say has a, a, a decidedly acquired taste. Uh, there are some wonderful accounts by travelers who go to Russia in the 18th or 19th century who are just completely taken aback by the taste of kvass. There's one description of something like the something like the queerest, most acidic drink ever. Like it's just it's it's it it is disconcerting um, to those who have not acquired a taste for it. But it was really very much the everyday drink. You know, vodka is something that comes in exactly when it's still a little fuzzy. It's definitely there by the 16th century, maybe the 15th century. Um, but definitely by the the sort of later 16th century. But that was something that was, you know, like people did not brew vodka at home. That was a mm-hmm. thing that was brewed centrally and sold. Um, there's actually a, an argument in um, an article by David Christian that there's a, a, a sort of surprising period of prohibition in Russia during the First World War. Um, but that period of prohibition may actually have sort of created some real problems because there really wasn't sort of samagon or home brewed or home distilled sort of hard spirits as a general thing in Russia sort of until there was this prohibition um, when that sort of came and it made it harder from that point on for the, the sort of state to keep control over hard out, hard spirit consumption. Uh, but again, you know, so that was something sort of very separate, but kvass and then to a certain extent beer and mead were the things that would actually be brewed say, in a village, in a town, um, sort of at home, in a household. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's a couple of things about this. And one is, of course, that, you know, people didn't drink water the way that we drink water now. And so cloth was, you know, that was the drink you drank if you were thirsty, you know, that that was the the thing you'd bring out to the field. But it also was something... So, like as you mentioned, there's that special Georgian mineral water that sits on yeah, the table. Right? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. God, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, and so class was the you know was that drink. You know, so that was the thing. Like, if you're working, you know, there's among the other sort of visions that people have of Russia is that like, oh, it's such a cold place. And of course, it can be very cold. 
but it's a, also got a continental climate. So its summers can be significantly hotter than some summers in Western Europe. You know, certainly on the steppe, like summers can be very hot there. And, you know, people brought cloth to the fields to drink and to sort of, they wouldn't have called it rehydrating, but that's what they were doing. Um, and mm-hmm. so it just became this very common, it, it simply was this incredibly common drink. And again, it's something that you see references to very early on. Um, it's also something that's used as an ingredient. It can be the base for certain kinds of she. It can be um, used to help start um, a sourdough bread. You know, there's all sorts of things because it's, you know, again, there's some fermentation going on there. So it's just a really um, sort of very ever-present um, thing. And to find it sort of, the it just appears all over the place. It's one of those things that I think with a lot of things when it comes to certain kinds of food history, it's, you don't actually have to go searching for things too much. You just have to be looking for them. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are, certainly when you start looking at cookbooks, you realize that there's all sorts of recipes for this. When you say, look at travel accounts to get descriptions of food. And in some ways, it feels weird to be writing about Russian food using a lot of foreigners' description of that food. Um, but that is, you know, frankly, that is where I found a lot of the most vivid descriptions of sort of what a meal might be and it's you know so and trying to use those descriptions in a way that is mm-hmm. sort of takes them not at face value but actually thinks about like what's going on with people talking about them seems to be the way to go um, but you see class pops up in all of these places you just mm-hmm. you just start noticing it all over the place when you when you start paying attention to it yeah. And, and I guess to, to be fair, I mean, you have a lot of descriptions like Illyrius is a good example as, as a mm. travel writer who's describing. And yet, you know, I think you do a really interesting work combining Russian literature as well. There's that famous scene in Tolstoy where, you know, Levin um, finally succumbs to excess after he's, um, you know, give, I forget if it's oysters or something like that, mm-hmm. but he's, he's actually shown, you know, a, a these great kind of symbols of excess and, and, and modernity. Um, so, you know, you're combining a lot of the, the kind of Russian cultural history and literature with, with observations um, of people from the outside. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the chapter where you speak about Russia becoming modern. So mm-hmm. um, here, you know, less than continuity, I'd like to ask you about change. So, mm-hmm. you know, first it, it begins in many ways with Peter the Great and the well-known story of Westernization and modernization, all the rules he has for, for people to do certain things. But what, I mean, what prescriptively would you say changes in the late era of, of the czars? And, you know, ultimately we come to the 20th century and the history of famine, scarcity, and so forth. But, but what are what are some of the big changes that you see um, in in the late imperial period in terms of food and drink and diet? Sure, I think there's a couple of things, and so one is certainly the rise of the town. Um, these, of course, you know, there's so many debates over sort of Russia's like whether you can call a town a city, and like there's there's so many debates in Russian history, um, and I don't try to go into that too much. But I think that one of the things that you really do see is a vision of towns becoming more central to um, sort of the vision of what's going on in Russia. Um, sort of the, the time of nobles and serfs on their estates is sort of pre-emancipation and then after emancipation, there's, a, there's just a lot more 
sort of investigation and thinking about life in towns. And that's maybe a bit of an overstatement, but I think that's been one of the ways that I've tended to think about it sort of more generally. And then it is a thing that really starts popping up here. Now, certainly things like, um, you know, some of the things that I tried to think about were things like the rise of restaurants and the rise of other sorts of eating establishments in towns to serve different kinds of populations. That's something I'd thought about, like they existed, you know, well before the end of the 19th century. But I think there are some real changes that start coming in later in that century, um, both in terms of the numbers and in terms of the idea that there are different kinds of things serving, um, you know, a larger population as you get more people, uh, largely peasants, migrating to towns to work um, and just sort of really changing the vision of what's going on in, in towns. And so there's different ways of thinking about that. I, um, I uh, was able to, it was funny when I was, I was in Russia um, a couple of years ago when I was sort of simultaneously trying to do some of the research and some of the writing on this, which was an interesting experience in various ways. Um, and I actually really enjoyed, I've never done writing while I was in Russia, but I did on this, this particular trip. And it turned out that a former um, undergraduate and MA student of mine from here in Toronto, uh, who's now finishing up his PhD at Illinois, um, Felix Cowan, was there and was doing working on his project on the penny press in late imperial Russia. Um, and I mm. asked him, say, by the way, are there ever advertisements for like restaurants or Stolova yeah. or things truck, like that? Truck, he said, truck, yeah. truck, truck, deer. <laughs> exactly. And he said, what? yeah, there actually are. And so he started just sending me some of the like images of some of the ads for them. And that actually um, really helped me sort of conceptualize what this world of sort of everyday eating was really starting to look like in the later uh, 19th century, early 20th century. Um, so I'm really grateful to him for, for sharing a lot of those things with me because uh, they really mm -hmm. helped inform that part of the, the project. Mm -hmm. I think there's also things, you know, like there's... Um, the big expansion into Siberia um, that sort of happens, not like obviously Siberia has been part of the Russian empire for centuries at this point, but the sort of, there's a sort of population movement of Russians into Siberia that happens. And that actually does create some real changes in food ways um, and sort of where food is being produced and where it's going. So there's some real shifts that are going on in terms of what's being produced where um, and so and things that are being produced in a more i mean it's not like this sort of industrial food production that we have now but something that's sort of moving in that sort of way i guess i would say um mm. whether that's sort of large-scale dairy industry in siberia or um as i think both uh chuck steinmetal and susan Smith peter have written about a bit sort of the growth of a sugar beet industry in certain parts of um, right. less European Russia than sort of Ukraine and some of the, the, the near empire, I guess. Um, so there's just shifts like that that are going on as well. Mm -hmm. I, and could you say a few words maybe about the, I mean, there's such an abundance of literature now in the history of, of famine. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think you've integrated that, um, in, in the later chapters and in the Soviet chapter, um, how did you do that? I, I mean, there's the familiar story that, that a lot of people will have in political memory of, of Leningrad and the Leningrad mm -hmm. siege. There's also humanitarian intervention. There's the Holodomor in Ukraine, the mm -hmm. 3.8, 3.9 million deaths. I mean, how, how are you integrating that 
into a book about food in, in cabbage and caviar? Well, I thought that because I tried to think about this as something that wasn't just about sort of what appears on people's plates, but to be part of the story is what doesn't appear on people's plates. And some of that is famine, you know, and famine is a sort of background issue in the history of food in Russia from very early in its history. And so it's something that I tried to start weaving in, in the early chapters of the book. You know, I think that there are, you know, because there are references to famines in the earliest chronicles, you know, so this is, this is a thing that is, is known. And to me, this is an essential part of the history of food. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that there's a sort of vision of the history of food as being sort of like light and fun, but it also, to me, if you're trying to really encompass the way that food, um, that's right. Is part of human existence. The lack of food is a driving force and a really major, bringer of change at some point. I think I started to see that in part out of my first book because I, there were, it wasn't never a major famine, but there were a series of crop failures in the 1830s that were really frightening. There was a real fear that they were going to turn into something very bad. And that did push for some, that created some real change. Um, and so I think because I sort of realized that in that project, I've always been aware of that as a major issue. So it's something I absolutely wanted to be part of the story. So to me, the sort of, you know, there's these early moments, but then the big famine at the end of the 19th century is to me a really centrally important moment in that story of um, that story of, of late imperial Russia. You know, it's something that I think was a real shaking kind of experience that was, um, I mean, not only was it deadly, but it also, you know, I think created some real, you know, I I think it's too strong to say like, oh, it directly led to the fall of the imperial state or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's part of that process of falling, I suppose I would say. Um, Mm -hmm. So because I think it's woven through that in some ways made it easier to grapple with the Soviet chapters or the Soviet chapter, which was, to me, the most intimidating chapter to approach again, because I had really never written about the Soviet Union before. And because there Mm -hmm. are these very disparate visions of Soviet food, because there is, of course, hunger as a major part of that, whether that is um, the collectivization famines, which is, of course, the Holodomor and also the Kazakh famine, um, which, of course, Sarah Cameron has just written this great book about, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, this is a really visible thing. There is the starvation during the siege of Leningrad. There's other problems with food supply during the war. There's, I mean, there's the famine that's right after the Second World War, as well as the famine in the 1920s. So it's like, so it is this sort of very present thing and not talking about that would make no sense. Um, but then mm-hmm. there are also these sort of amazing, really like, and it seems strange to talk about the 1930s as a time where there are fun stories, but there are fun stories about yeah. food <laughs> in the 1930s. You know, because mm-hmm. of Mikoyan and his sort of vision of Soviet abundance and, you know, and some of the bits and pieces that, um, you know, sort of came out there are just sort of amazing. And that is part of the story, even if it's not necessarily reflective of the experience of an awful lot of the people living in the Soviet Union. Um, so trying mm-hmm. to balance those visions of, you know, like the, the feasts that are portrayed in the book of Tasty and Healthy Food versus the reality of a lot of people having significantly more restricted um, sort of opportunities for eating, even if it's not full-fledged famine, still having less less access to goods. Um, 
was something that I tried to to really figure out how to handle. And so I think I ended up trying to focus on the story of hunger in the Soviet Union, the vision of plenty in the Soviet Union, and then sort of everyday realities that were somewhere in between the, the, the somewhere in between the two um, as my way of mm-hmm. kind of grappling with the Soviet story. Mm-hmm. I, I also get the impression, Allison, and, and thanks for that, that in many ways you're returning to your um, former self <laughs> in the end of the book. And, and mm-hmm. I, because, you know, you first came to the Russian Federation and, and it's a first person narrative in 1992 on a language program. And, and so you begin picking up what you had written as an observer. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're actually, you know, talking about your staple meals and, and, and Fanta and McDonald's. <laughs> I love, I love that story about McDonald's. I wonder if you might, might share that, you know, sort of, again, an archeological dig, digging up your self from the 1990s. Yeah, that was, so the, the epilogue, it's not quite long enough to call it a chapter. So we, I called it an epilogue, uh, which is the sort of post-Soviet experience. And of course, that's the the part of Russian history that, you know, I've, my first trip was, it was actually 1991. So I'm almost up to the 30 year anniversary of my first trip to Russia. Um, and going in the fall of 1991 was quite a an interesting time, I guess I will put it that way, to have as your first trip to this brand new state, which is the Russian Federation. Um, and so, you know, it was, I found that a really enjoyable and really enlightening thing to write um, because I tried to interleave my own experiences of eating in Russia and apologies, there's a dog barking outside, so I hope it's not too, too audible right now, uh, but tried to inter, you know, my own memories of food. And like, I, you know, I, I'm not quite sure I would say that I'm a foodie, but I do, you know, like I like food. I pay attention to food. Yeah. So it is a part of my memory. Even, you know, I had this, this journal that I kept on my first trip. So I use that for some specific, um, some specific things, but a lot of it is just coming from memory. But then mm-hmm. this gave me the chance to kind of pull back from my own personal history and personal memories and try to figure out what was going on behind the scenes, even if I didn't understand it at the time. So to yeah. understand what things like the ruble um, crisis, <laughs> the ruble crisis, the multiple ruble crises, um, what was going on in terms of the privatization of collective farms and what that meant for food supply, you know, just sort of really look into a lot of the things that were going on that were why on that first trip, the stores had nothing, but a few markets did and why already, why kiosks popped up all over the place in the middle of the nineties or early in the nineties and sort of kiosk land became my way of getting those things. Um, And then why kiosks, you know, we're like in Moscow, at least we're just completely taken out a few years back in this sort of city beautifying uh, process. And just all of these different visions of trying to understand a little bit more what was going on on that level of, you know, my experiences in Russia. Because of course we pay attention to kind of larger political things, but what sort of lies under like literally the everyday process of going to, um, whether it's a McDonald's on um, I, I like I, I think I admit to the fact that I cried when I first saw <laughs> McDonald's in Moscow in 1991. I'd been I spent that I was on um, a language a program <laughs> living in Krasnodar in southern Russia for, for most of the fall. And we went up for this trip to Moscow and St. Petersburg um, after having been there for a couple of months. 
And I will admit, I, I got teary when I saw the McDonald's. It just seemed like this thing that reminded me of home. And like, and not that I actually went to McDonald's that often, but mm-hmm. still it was there. It was this part of this thing. Um, yeah. Anyway. But, uh, but I, I love that. I mean, in, in many ways also because you're revisiting the cost of food. I mean, you're, mm. you're actually trying to see this in, I think, in, in ways that expats often forget from the standpoint of, of your host and yeah. from the fam the families where you know you're living and you're staying or maybe renting a room for a short amount of time and you know then you come back to your sort of like rich western academic life but i mean you actually pay very close attention to the cost of bread mm-hmm. and the cost of meats and what you know what happens i, I would say even through the 90s to the 2000s in terms of scale and and agriculture yeah. And, and I guess that's, you know, that's something that there's certainly a whole lot more to be done about, um, you know, garden plots and sushi restaurants and the explosions of Georgian restaurants and, mm-hmm. and in places that are in many ways far away from Moscow and St. Petersburg and, and, and from you know the libraries and archives where we become comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess that that's a bigger question for you now, since we're um, beginning to run out of time. I wondered if you might um, suggest some books, either books about food. Or you already me- mentioned, you know, Trish Starks. I think there's Dara Goldstein as well and other people. I mean, maybe you have some books in mind for us here at New Books Network to uh, suggest. Sure. A couple of them are, I think, people that you've you've already interviewed in some ways. And some of it's also not just on food. But of course, Steve Bittner has his new book on wine uh, in in the history of wine in Russia, which is, I think, a really fun, fun is maybe not quite the right word. I hope you're okay with that, Steve, if you're listening to this. Um, (laughs) But it's, I think, a good exploration of something that people don't really think about when they think about Russia, and yet does have this very distinct history that sort of hits on some of these same beats, those sort of questions of production and questions of consumption and its role on the table and in different kinds of discourse. Um, and then there's an edited volume that came out, I think in 2019, um, called Seasoned Socialism, uh, which mm-hmm. is, it's an edited volume by Anastasia Mokhtikova, um, Angela Brittlinger, and Irina Glushenko. And it's got some really lovely um articles in it. It's mostly about late Soviet Russia. So I would say the majority of it is sort of the Brezhnev era, but it's a bit uh, more sort of, some of it reaches back to the larger post-war era in general. And I think we have a lot, even if we didn't necessarily experience some of these things, certainly, you know, there were visions of what food was like in say the 1980s. I mean, you had all those visions of people waiting in line. And this gives us really some of the, a few of the chapters um, give really interesting visions of what that experience was like. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny, I actually, I read it to review it last year at the beginning of lockdown and when there oh. were so many shortages in, sure. um, in it's... all sorts of places. And it was really, it was a really interesting experience reading these descriptions of how people kind of coped with um with different kinds of shortages in this very brief moment in the end in which there were shortages all around. Um, so it was, I, I found it a very, a very intriguing uh, thing to read at that particular time. And just sort of thinking back, you know, uh, there's a lot of discussion of the ways that food, despite, or maybe because of some of its challenges in access, 
really continued to play an important role of something that people wanted to put time into preparing to to feed people well to to sort of really do this and it is an interesting idea of the ways that sort of living in sort of a stressful time can not push people away from that but actually maybe even build it up a little bit more and i felt that that was something that really resonated in the mm-hmm. sort of you know the the everybody start a sourdough or make focaccia or sure. whatever it is that people were doing last year yeah right and and share and you know and sharing recipes and the internet i mean this is such yeah. a burgeoning message boards um i i guess you know well beyond the as you say well beyond the utilitarian element oh totally um, Let's talk about your, and finally, you know, let's talk about your current research. So I understand that you're, you're working on your cheese master again and, <laughs> um, and, and gotchina. So tell us, tell us about your current uh, book projects. Oh, this is a, this is a challenging question at the moment. Uh, so I, a few years back, actually it's more than a few at this point. I think it's getting on towards seven years ago. I started looking into um, records about the palace and town of Gachina, uh, which turned out also to involve a bunch of the villages in the area, because there was at one point a royal estate of Gachina that encompassed the palace and then a series of villages um, and their inhabitants. One of the villages was called Gachina, and it was made into a town by Emperor Paul um, very shortly after he came to the throne, because uh, this was one of his residences. Um, and it turns out that the archival records for Gashina are truly amazing. Um, and that has to do with some per- peculiarities of its administration and governance. But there's just so much fascinating material that digs into, or not digs into, but just sort of lays out all sorts of just kind of everyday stories of people living in these villages, in the town, and even to an extent the Romanovs who occasionally lived in the palace. Um, it wasn't a major palace. It's not the Winter Palace. It's not Peterhof. Mm, right. um, but Emperor Paul and then later Alexander III spent large chunks of time um, at the palace and others sort of spent time in between. So the project kind of has evolved. I, I came to it um, after, actually, literally after having gone there and being sort of intrigued by it and thinking, I wonder if there's something to do about that. And then it turned out that the archives are pretty amazing. So there's so much in the archives that I've sort of been struggling a bit with how to how to pull it all together. Uh, so there are some things like I there was I randomly ordered an archival file that was literally caught in the case of the dead cheese master um, or Diella. I'm translating Diella as case, but I think mm-hmm. that's legitimate. Um, and which turned out to be the story of a Swiss cheesemaker who made cheese at Gachina in the 1790s uh, uh, and who died under actually not that mysterious circumstances um, and just mm-hmm. sort of looking into the file and thinking what you could tell from this one archival file. So in the end, I'm sort of simultaneously working on two different book projects, one of which kind of tries to really celebrate the detail in some of the specific archival files by having a chapter that just lets me dive deeply into the story of one of the files. So the case of the cheese master would be one. Um, there's some others. There's a, a wonderful case of a noble woman who is incensed that a policeman called her T instead of V mm-hmm. um, uh, or the called her with the informal uh, U as opposed to the formal U. 
Um, and there's a few other sort of really interesting things that I think will be part of that. Um, and that one I've been sort of piecing together bit by bit. Um, and then the other will be, I think, a bit more of a standard academic monograph. And the thing that's ended up really pulling me is thinking about sort of what it means or what it meant, like practically on an everyday basis, that Russia was an autocracy. Like what did mm -hmm. it, how did individual like residents of the town of Gatchina or of the villages around there interact with autocratic structures of authority? Um, of course, it's a little bit weird to look at that at a place where the czars actually literally sometimes showed up. But right. I think that's actually part of the thing that makes it a really interesting, because you see yeah, a yeah. lot of the structures kind of in miniature there. Um, yeah. and, and, and so and, whether and, that's policing I, or other I, sorts of things. Poli yeah. Policing, everyday life, diet, nutrition. Yeah. I mean, even, even where they're going, right? I mean, if they leave the residence, um, I think that would be fascinating. I mean, I, I'm so interested in, in many of the social history elements that you weave into the story of food. Mm -hmm. Um and I, ha I have to say, you know, uh, let's talk about cheese when you're finished with the book. <laughs> I, lo I love that internet poll that 64% of Russians would choose cheese over Crimea. That, that's, a, that's a fascinating story is, you know, with all the counter sanctions as they're trying to develop their own sort of Russian version, Ruski Brie and Russian Parmesan and so forth. So, um, yeah, I, I hope we can do this again. <laughs> Um, when, when the dead cheese master is, is dead. <laughs> that good. Yeah. I actually have an article that I need to revise this summer about cheese. It, like that just focuses on cheese. Cause it turns out there's a whole cheese story, which is unexpected, <laughs> but that's pretty fun. But yeah, I, I will, you know, it's funny being department chair, um, has slowed my writing process down a bit, but honestly, and this is only half a joke. It has also helped me kind of grapple with this question of like, what is an autocracy and what does it mean? Um, <laughs> And I, it's sort of thinking about, you know, obviously being a department chair is not actually being an autocrat, but there are certain ways, or at least it shouldn't be being oh. an autocrat, but there are way, interesting ways in which um, sort of the hierarchical structures of a university tell you interesting things about some of the hierarchical structures of hierarchical institutions like an autocratic state. Um, so it's been surprisingly um Generative, yeah. I would say, in my approach to the subject, even though well, if any colleagues happen to listen to this, I hope you recognize that I am actually trying with all my heart not to be an autocrat. <laughs> well, fan fantastic. In the name of Soslovia and democracy <laughs> and cheese, I congratulate you, Allison Smith, on your book. Uh, I am Stephen Siegel, and we've been talking here on the New Books Network podcast, new books in Russian and Eurasian studies and new books food with Allison Smith. Her new book is Cabbage and Caviar, A History of Food in Russia, uh, just out with the University of Chicago Press and Reaction Books in 2021. Thanks so much again, Allison, for joining me. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And to all our listeners, until next time.